2: Hey, Ray. Hey, Marcus. Today, I would like to take a look at maybe the occult side of rock and roll, the mystical side of rock and roll. The whole maybe, thing? Not the whole thing, but one important moment in time. We're going to discuss or even look at fairies and dragons and uh, battles with swords and Vikings. and uh, Vikings? Vikings. Wow. Which means we're going to be drinking our uh, Crooked Eye from Grogs today.
0: That's right. Crooked Eye, our sponsor here on the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. Wow. That's some uh, very drastic imagery. Some of it sounds like it could be in a Tolkien book.
2: It could be in a Tolkien book. and So we're going to Middle Earth. We're going totally to Middle Earth
0: with perfect sound. If they had sound in Middle Earth... In the time of The Hobbit and all that, it would have been this album. Without It would doubt. have been perfect, perfect sound. Every now and then, we like to dig in here on the podcast and just talk about one of the great albums of all time. Can you guess which one we're talking about today? Oh, I see a hand over there. Okay. You on the left. Yes. Yes, it's Led Zeppelin four. even though it's technically not called Led Zeppelin Four. But we'll talk about that. And uh, a whole bunch of stuff here about the fourth record from The Mighty Zeppelin. This album is magnificent.
2: And the stories behind it, which I'm learning more and more about as we research, are just unbelievable. And how the songs came together, how they were written. It's hard to even wrap your head around how magnificent and how close to perfect this album
0: is. Most of it was conceived and recorded... At Headley Grange, a country poorhouse. It's where they used to send you if you got like convicted. You're a poor, you go to the poorhouse. You go to Headley Grange. You know what I mean?
2: Not the poorhouse where you drink air. No, not that poorhouse.
0: P-O-O-R house. And that's what it was. And by the time the 60s and the 70s came around, they weren't doing that anymore, but the land was still there, and Headley Grange was still there, and somehow it became available as a, a rehearsal spot for bands getting ready to go on tour or getting ready to go in the studio. And Zeppelin liked it as a place to hang out and to record. It wasn't uncommon in that time period for bands to go to country estates and places remote to uh, record with the rolling truck stones parked outside.
2: Yeah, and Jimmy Page said that one of the things that was very important to him about recording at Hedley Grange was the fact that they could all stay there So they could really dig into the project because he was that type of a workaholic where it was very important to him that you be available 24-7.
0: There's a lot of footage out there on YouTube and on the internet and a lot of places of them arriving, walking about. You know, there was not as much filming going on as there is today of artists doing their thing. But there was, they knew what they were in the middle of and there's film of it. You can find it on the internet. It gives you a look at Headley Grange in those days. But there's also a more modern clip. You'll find it's Jimmy Page taking you through Headley Grange, including taking you to the spot where John Bonham's drums were recorded at the bottom of the stairwell. Wow.
3: (laughs) Boy, oh boy. This brings back some memories. Yeah. This is, uh, well, it comes straight into the entrance hall, and this is the... This is the hall where the uh, drums were set up and where where Levy breaks was recorded. Now, did you ever have any images of that
0: in That's, my head yeah, only? Yeah. And what was your vi- like? What did you envision in your head when you thought of bottom at the bottom of the stairwell? Like a big school stairwell,
2: yeah, open and metal and bangy and. Ksh, ksh, real I titty, always like, thought.
0: Poor house, I thought of Oliver Twist. Yeah. So I always thought it was like you know, like you said, like at the end of all the floors there were the stairwells that went down and they were all like wrought iron and it was old and crusty and dark and and that they the microphones that's why it echoed so much, not knowing that when you looked at it it looked like the entryway to a very nice bed and breakfast, all sunny and light. Yeah. You
3: know, this wonderful ambience to the drums. Yeah, you can hear the the, the reflective surfaces, you know, it's really live and ambient. We had a recording truck parked on the outside here and you'd be running the wires from their cables with the mic leads running them into their house. The mics were put up here over the banisters here. After this you heard of... Uh, other, other, you know, drummers and, 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 and bands looking for lift shafts and things to record in to get to get the height, you see.
0: But that's where the sound came from. And they captured it with just a few microphones placed around Bonham and in the stairwell itself. And that's where you get the sound on all those amazing drum tracks on Led Zeppelin 4.
2: Yeah, and the stories of how the other songs came together, which we will address throughout this episode, are wonderful, and definitely when you hear these stories, it explains why this album is so good all the way
0: through and why they did it the way
2: they did it.
0: I can say without any reservation that if I did my five favorite rock albums of the 70s, it's got to be somewhere in there. It is... Front to back, inside and out. One of the greatest albums. No filler, no leftovers. In fact, there were songs that were technically leftovers that are also Zeppelin classics now the, from the sessions that they did. Songs like Down by the Seaside, Night Flight, and Boogie with Stew," which was one of two songs that featured Ian Stewart of the Rolling Stones on piano, Rock and Roll being the other one that made the record. By the way, Ian... And Sandy Denny from Fairport Convention, the only two artists ever to record with Led Zeppelin. Uh, She's, of course, on the Battle of Evermore, one of the songs here on Zeppelin 4, which we're discussing here on the podcast, The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. To get into the middle of Led Zeppelin 4, Marcus, we kind of have to start at the end of Led Zeppelin 3, really, because after all that, they have been on tour, recording on the road, and releasing records, and touring some more constantly since they started. So they decided that they would take a break, no performances, they turned down tours, and they all just focused on making the next record. If you're looking for why it became the tour de force that it is ever since it was released, they just put the full force and energy into writing and recording this album. And that included going to Headley Grange.
2: If they were so burned out and they were so fried, how were they able to put that much into it? That's the part that sometimes can be really uh, hard, min- to hard to understand and yeah. really hard to grasp because they what? were fried. The People yes. don't realize how hard they were touring and how hard
0: they were partying at that well, time. Well, that too, yeah. Tour, record, tour, record. There wasn't really downtime. When they went, III, they went to do Zeppelin 3, they went to Your Cottage to get away from everything and everybody, no electricity and you know, no in- indoor plumbing, that kind of stuff. And came back with Led Zeppelin 3, they're not getting away from everything here. They're just turning everything else off. They just turned off touring, all other distractions. Just go to Headley Grange, but that's that's where they were coming in off the Led Zeppelin three and, and the fact that despite the fact that all three of their first records had continued to sell briskly, uh, Peter Grant and, and the boys were very pissed off at the way that they continuously were treated by the press, the media at large, but certainly by the press when it came to critics and, and whatnot, except for, you know, Lester Banks, who just praised them every chance he got. And he called their shit out when he needed to as well. So, Let's create this moment in your mind. Everyone has it, where for the first time, you take out Led Zeppelin four, you put it on a turntable, and you drop the needle, and it whirs from a standstill. The Black Dog, Hey Hey Mama, said the way you move. One of the oldest blues style vocal riffs you can go for, right? Going yeah. right back to the roots of the blues in a new way with Black Dog. Sucks you in right away.
2: Pulls you in right from the moment those notes hit you. Side one, Zeppelin four became famous for making out in a movie. Which Coming movie was age. that? Fast Times of Ridgemont. Oh, that's right. Dimone, Dimone, the Damone,
0: the Damone Giving factory. Rat
2: some advice. That's right. Now, this is most important, Rat. It comes down to making out whenever
0: possible.
1: Put on side one of Led Zeppelin 4.
0: Black Dog got its name not from the lyrics, but from a black dog that was actually hanging around Hedley Grange when they were making the record. I think that's worth noting since they named the song after the dog. They didn't call it Rex or anything.
2: And wasn't that riff written by John Paul Jones, if I'm not mistaken? I think he's the one who uh, came up with that opening riff, according to Jimmy Page.
0: Cool. Next up on side one... The anthem, rock and roll. Again, looking back a little bit. It's been a long time since I rock and rolled, right? And it's all the power and fury of these guys. I picture the, the other guys recording in different parts of the house, bottom there at the base of the stairwell pounding the shit out of those drums
2: oh my god i bet he was just abusing those drums
0: and that's also one of the songs that has uh stew uh, on uh playing the piano that rock and roll piano that boogie woogie piano mm-hmm. is Ian mm-hmm. mm-hmm. stewart who is one of the founding members of the rolling stones if you didn't know so you start with this one two power rock salvo and if you're listening for the first time at the end of this year you're, you're coming up for air man you're like holy shit And then they bring it down, and they bring in Sandy Denny to duet with Robert on the Battle of Evermore, and you're starting to see the Tolkien imagery that we were talking about uh, in references and lyrics, uh, beginning to bring in the mysticism, maybe mysticism more than the occult, but the occult was definitely mixed in because of Jimmy's dabblings.
2: Well, they were both dabbling into it a little differently. It seemed that Robert Plant was more into the Viking aspect and the Tolkien aspect of mysticism, whereas Robert Plant or whereas Jimmy Page was into the uh, Alistair Crowley dark side of it. So They were in different universes, it seemed at that time.
0: And you get to the end of Side One, Marcus, and it's the one, the anthem, the number one on every countdown, fan favorite countdown or radio countdown since it came out. um, Stairway to Heaven. All eight minutes of it. Not the edit for radio. They didn't
2: release an edit for radio. I swear they must have. They did not. The label did that. They said no. Um, Jimmy Page actually mentioned that in a video where we decided that when we released that as a single, we couldn't find any any place to edit it, so there was no
0: way we were going to release it as an edit. Well done, well played, my friend, because you know what? I didn't realize that. I figured they had to have one for yeah. you know the AM stations. No, that was one that
2: was uh, done years later. They were like, you will play it all in its entirety, which, of course,
0: FM radio did, especially AOR. Yeah, they made it. They made it into what it became. And what it became is why there's a lawsuit being resurrected... Uh, regarding the copyrights of Stairway to Heaven. The earnings from royalties, from Airplay, from ASCAP and BMI and Airplay and all that good stuff for, for this song is such a number that it's easy to understand why somebody would want to pursue a case if they thought they had one. But I think what we talked about doing today is looking at the actual audio and seeing if we can't figure a little of this out on our own in regards to all the lawsuit stuff over Stairway to Heaven. Yes. To explain
2: royalties a little bit better, maybe think of Bobby Bonilla's Million dollars a year he gets from the New York Mets. If you have a songwriting credit, you get absolutely some sort of insane royalty, like a million dollars. Depends upon year. the
0: song. Depends upon how well but it did and I, how well it continues to do. Air worldwide. Yeah,
2: I guarantee you, they make insane. They would never have to work again There are a just lot of people royalty. on
0: this planet who had that happen. Yep. Two, three, four hit songs had huge runs, made a lot of money and and have had a wonderful life just being playing around town and being semi-retired and absolutely doing what they want the way they want to do it so so those are the stakes in regards to this lawsuit when it first came up i looked at it because that's what we do right yeah. this is long this is when we were friends but not doing a podcast yeah. and that's when i heard about well of course we're talking about spirit and Randy, California is a state, and I think Mark is also involved from Spirit suing Jimmy Page and Led Zeppelin over them stealing this the descending riff in the beginning of Stairway to Heaven. So I started looking into it, and then I found out about this guy. He was like the Jimmy Page of the 1670s instead of the 1970s. Oh, right? like
2: 300 years earlier. Yeah.
0: His name was Giovanni Battista Granada
2: giovanni isn't that like john or something like that hey, in italian it
0: was johnny granada yeah in his little toccata too
3: <laughs>
0: it was one of his compositions and i thought we've been talking about it we've been listening to all these things let's make our case here that there's no case against led zeppelin for stairway to heaven so first this is giovanni bautista granada doing his taquata, and there's the descending pattern, and then it changes. So we'll show you how each example changes. Sound good? I'm good with that. All right, Johnny, you're on. Just a little bit more about Giovanni. He lived uh, 1621 to 1687, so you get an idea when he was around. Yeah. He lived a very uh, long, productive musical life. And everything he is credited with writing, including his toccata, is in public domain. Which means anybody can
2: use any of those notes at any time and build around them.
0: Now, fast forward to the dispute we're talking about, Spirit and this lawyer... Has put together the lawsuit and it was denied and it's been granted a new trial. They say that Jimmy and the guys, having worked around Spirit, heard their song Taurus and lifted this riff from it for the descending riff at the beginning of Stairway to Heaven. So this is Spirit. <laughs> Now, does that sound kind of like Giovanni to you a little bit? It sounds like Giovanni. Same kind of descending thing, and then it goes like to the left instead of the In right. In its own direction. Yeah. All right. So here's the famous descending riff from Stairway. It gets to the bottom of the descending riff, and it turns in another direction, different direction altogether. But I hear Giovanni in
2: that one as well.
0: Yes. So if he could, would he sue everybody?
2: <laughs> I don't think so. Man, his lawyers would be really expensive.
0: Well, Marcus, before we flip it over and talk about side two and more about Led Zeppelin four on this episode, why don't we head to Hapro and see the guys. And crooked and I. I know when I'm thirsty, I head to the heart of Hatboro and go see my friends at Crooked Eye Brewery. I want to thank Paul,
2: Paul, and the whole gang for their support for our podcast. It's been great.
0: Now, when you want to taste the freshest, most creative brews in the Bucksmont, you go to Crooked Eye at York Road and Montgomery right there in the heart of Hatboro.
2: Pouring the cure for what ails you since 2014. The Crooked Eye Crew makes every single night fun.
0: Hey, and you can keep up with the live entertainment on the brewery's Facebook page. That's the best way to know what's happening there, including their free Tuesday night's blues jam, which has taken off.
2: The Home Brewers Club and my partner in crime, Ray's final Nights, which are the third Wednesday of the month. That's every when the month. home
0: brewers meet. And live music all the time, including the Crooked Eye Band.
2: There's always good fun to be had.
0: And a new friend to be made at Crooked Eye. And we want to thank them, as always, for their support of what we do on this crazy, imbalanced podcast.
2: When you need a fresh, tasty brew,
0: head to Hatboro and make it Crooked Eye. It's funny because, you know, there's actually a beer called Misty Mountain Hops. Did you know that? No, who's, uh, who makes that? I don't know, but I saw it out there on the internet. I thought it was pretty funny at one point. That's a great name for a beer. Yeah, and that's also a great name for a song, also kind of based on the Tolkien stuff that we were talking about uh, from Side 1, and that's how we start Side 2 of Led Zeppelin 4 on this episode of The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. And it's it's a power rocker, with that Jonesy keyboard, you know, electric keyboard, you know, powering through the beginning getting you into the heart of the song. And just like on side one, it's followed up with another uh, pounder, uh, Four Sticks. Yeah. Do you know the story behind that? I don't know
2: the story behind Four Sticks.
0: Another one where the uh, title of the song doesn't really have to do with anything in the lyrics. Bonzo had a style that he could play with two sticks in each hand. And when he does that, that's with four sticks. And uh. that's where the title of the song comes from. Again, pure power, man.
2: Yeah, that guy hit. He he had the, the hammer of the gods. He hit like the hammer of the gods. Absolutely. But it was so beautiful, too. The sounds he made were magnificent. And he kept the band in line. That dude's drumming kept them all in line.
0: Well, this is the album where everyone is hitting on max cylinders, full power, all at one time all at the same time and you know some of the finishing work was done in a regular studio but you know the songs that they recorded out there in the country came together and one of the prettiest things going to california uh is something that, that that jimmy and robert did and jimmy wasn't really a mandolin player he just started farting around with it a little bit and this riff came out and one next thing you know they've got this great song and a lyric about Joni Mitchell, and it becomes one of those radio favorites forever. Every song on this album is a radio favorite, is its fan favorite.
2: I remember hearing every song on this album on rock radio through the late seventies. Every single song would be heard on, would be played on AOR radio. It's and like rock all radio. your life,
0: seriously. You know, it's it's just always there. And uh, it, the album closes with. Uh, their extended Zeppelin-esque take on Memphis minis When the Levee Breaks, which includes... I mean, that the drum riff at the beginning has been sampled and used by so many in hip-hop as an example of where the two meet and cross over. But the power. And when he breaks into the harmonica riff and just burns the fucker down, all the way down, just that song just blisters all the way down to the quick... At the end, right? It's just the quipped ending. And that's how you wrap up Zeppelin 4. But but you're not done. You know what you do next? You flip it over. And you look at the cover. You read all the liner notes. Of
2: course you do. But you're doing that. Aren't you reading the liner notes while you listen to the music?
0: My first listen, all I did was listen to the music. But the second listen, which was right afterwards, then I got all the notes out and all that stuff. And we learned so much since then. When they were putting the record together, kind of as an answer to what we were talking earlier about the response that they got on the first few records, they decided that they weren't going to put anything on the cover. You, the pictures, you see the pictures that are there. You see the artwork that's on the inside. Uh, we talked a little bit, and we'll talk a little bit more about the symbols. But, you know, the inside paper has that kind of a modeled aged look to it, and all the, all the letters are in handwritten scripts and all, very cool and all that. But there's nothing on the outside. Grant and the band were adamant. No stickers, no. No to everything they wanted to do to identify what it was because of the internet now you could take an image of led zeppelin 4 cover put it on the led zeppelin uh social media pages and say new album thursday and people would know and they would go and they would get it wherever they get it now they probably get to steal the digital download but anyway in those days it was pretty amazing to be able to do and they did it the way they wanted to do it and it was a response to that and the album turned out to be one of the biggest-selling albums of all time, despite the fact that they were they were thumbing their nose at the whole fucking thing.
2: In the United States, that album alone has outsold Back in Black by AC/DC. It has outsold Fleetwood Mac's Rumors, and this was as of, like, 2016, 2017, when Jimmy Page was talking about it for one of the uh, guitar magazines or the rock, classic rock magazines during an interview. Also, it had outsold... Uh, so many other uh, it was one of the biggest all-time selling rock and roll albums in the United States as far as single albums go and I think it moved like 700,000 copies in the first week
0: yeah it sold through on everything it was gold the first week 23 times platinum Uh, not many albums have reached that plateau in the annals of rock and roll uh, number one in uh, UK and in Canada, but only reached number two, believe it or not, in the US on the on the Billboard 200. But you know, multiple multiple platinums and diamonds everywhere, all kinds of territories. One of the most iconic records of all time, and it's part a tour of the force. It is, and part of that is something we've been dissecting and discussing. Uh, is the uh, symbols that they used for the cover art and inside and to identify, and on the label too, to identify the members of Zeppelin. And and we had actually had a pretty spirited research uh, dive and discussion about that uh, while we were talking uh, about this whole thing with the symbols. Basically, they wanted each of them to come up with a symbol that would be representative of them on the liner notes and, uh, you know, and in the artwork. Uh, Jimmy Page came up with the Zoso. And what's the source of that?
2: The C- It's a, it's um, From Ecology to Occult, uh, The Secrets of Led Zeppelin 4 from Louder Magazine, which is at loudersound.com. And it says, what... Of Jimmy Page's rune, his symbol, the sigil that became known as Zoso, which by Led Zeppelin for was sometimes termed before Jimmy himself adopted it as kind of a sobriquet. It was uh, more arcane, I guess. Uh, there was this guy that he was collecting art from named Austin Osmond Spare. Jimmy sometimes called him Britain's greatest unknown artist, and it was tied with Chaos Magic and the Zos and deep shit, really deep stuff that I don't even really understand because I haven't studied it. I well, don't he know if I really, it. yeah. And he,
0: he designed it, and he never copped to what it really was all about. And that, even though people called it Zoso for the name of the album, some people called it Runes. <laughs> of, you know, yeah. But he designed that, and Jonesy, uh, he chose his symbol, was from Rudolph Cook's Book of Signs. It's a single circle with intersecting Vesica Pisces, a triquetra. And he was kind of a triquetra, a triple threat in his role in Zeppelin. And then Plant has a large ring with a feather in the middle.
2: His symbol, the feather of Mott. She was the Egyptian goddess of truth, justice, and fairness, with which the Egyptians were to conduct themselves on a daily basis. And this included family, community, the nation, and the environment.
0: And then your favorite is Bonzo, because it's it's a multi-purpose symbol. It's signifying uh, in strength in man, woman, and child, and we know how important his family was to him. You could take other applications, and uh, you and I had quite a spirited discussion this week about its similarities to the uh, symbol for Ballantine beer. Yes. And I think
2: there, it had something to do with a cl- label like a Ballantine local beer in England. Yeah, or a near mi- where It was like from. a microbrew, I guess right, you pr- would call it by, back then. We don't know. We, don't, we don't, don't really know. But yeah.
0: here in America, Ballantine's been around since the 1800s, and yeah. I saw that that's when they they patented their logo. Okay, so it's but been they had had that, a while. But
2: they had had that logo since way before Led Zeppelin had it. Oh yeah. So it was part of the it was real just Ballantine,
0: and it was really like coincidence. Like I said to you, I said maybe. He comes up with this, and they go, yeah, that's really cool. And by the way, it looks like the Valentine Beer logo. Bones, you know? Maybe. I don't know. You never know. And that's where part of the legends come from, because a lot of the stuff is we don't know because they didn't tell us all this stuff. No. The other thing that's interesting about the symbols is that they gave one to their uh, guest, Sandy Denny, and it's uh, three inverted triangles. But
2: they didn't give one to Stewie.
0: Stewie, no, it, he didn't get a symbol.
2: Which is weird. So there should technically be six symbols on there.
0: I wonder why they didn't do that.
2: I wonder if he declined a symbol,
0: which Contractual, he could have done. maybe. Label stuff. Ooh,
2: but it's a symbol without a name, so.
0: You know what's funny is, if they asked Ian about it, he probably would have said, ah, that's all right. I'll just go in with the Ballantine beer crowd. That would be still. <laughs>
2: That's awesome.
0: But then, you know, they would get out on the road and, um, and and continue the debauchery and the fun and games that we've heard about, you know, through the 70s, as long as they could do it. But this point in their career was huge. The response, immediate and continued for decades to Led Zeppelin IV. Today. Is unheard of. There's always new leadheads. Always.
2: They and uh, Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon are albums that have that impact on people.
0: There are others, but there are very few that are still today selling at an appreciable level. But they're out there, and it's happening. Yeah, Pink
2: Floyd, Led Zeppelin, and there's so many other bands, and we could definitely do an episode on that. As far as the album goes, The uh, Hermit on there, pretty interesting. Um, From the tarot card of The Hermit, and it's tied to Earth and ecology and... We need to save the planet. And I think uh, there is isn't, if I'm not mistaken, there's a little uh, poster with some words written on there that people can't see very well.
0: On the inside artwork. Yes.
2: As far as the cover goes and talking about the hermit on the cover and not only were they interested in their symbolism and whatever occult type of things they were believing right. in at that time. They were also very concerned about the environment, and that's something that they've all been very concerned about throughout their lives, and I think they've made it very clear. Something that was said in an interview in uh, 2010, the cover was supposed to be something that was for other people to savor rather than for me to actually spell everything out, which would make the whole thing rather disappointing on that level of your own personal adventure into the music.
0: And... All the other stuff about them wanting to just strip it all down and and bring people to it naturally. It's it and and you know the environmental side of that goes back to their experiences amidst the debauchery of the first couple of years, uh, uh-huh. getting away and just and realizing uh, that we only live on the very top little fringe part of this blue marble and that we got to take care of it. Yeah.
2: So. Pretty amazing album through and through.
0: Zeppelin IV is definitely in my top five, ten records of the 70s. I, we should maybe do an, uh, a five favorites on that. But the one thing you're going to have a hard time doing, you might have a hard time picking your five favorites of Led Zeppelin IV because there's every song's great.
2: I don't know if I could pick because it would depend. It would depend seriously on the day, on the week, I mean, on my
0: mood. mood yeah, it could be, could be. So maybe we won't do that one.
2: I mean, seriously, a lot. Of, I mean, seriously, think about how many people we hear complain about songs like "Stairway to Heaven," but boy, when that instrumental part kicks in, everybody who's complaining about it is jamming the hell out. That's so true. Playing air guitar <laughs> when it gets rolling, you're into it too. That song is magnificent, but then again, so is every single song on that album.
0: Well, the legend continues to grow. It doesn't seem to fade much. I'll say that. And uh, even as our heroes continue to uh, age and do what they do, um, we can always flip on any part of Led Zeppelin 4, and right there, you're back in the moment. Whatever the moment is for you, wherever you jumped onto the mothership, um, it's that moment when you plugged into Zeppelin for reals.
2: (sighs) Still one of my favorite bands of all time, and I don't think that will ever change.
0: Give us your thoughts, your feelings about this episode, and anything else about the podcast. You can email us here at, at com.
2: Yeah, if we missed anything, please let us know. We are on Facebook, The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll, Twitter, Imbalanced Histo, and soon we will be on Instagram, but again, you can always email us at The Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll.
0: A lot of you are finding us on the Pantheon Podcast Network. That's great. Uh, A lot of you are on other apps all around the world, and we thank you from wherever you plug in. Uh, Let people know that you like the podcast. Spread the word. It seems to work, and uh, we'll just keep doing this crazy podcast, my man.
2: Hey, it's been a blast, and I think we should still continue the conversation about rock and roll. There's so much more conversation to be had about this rich, magnificent history.
0: Thanks to Paul and Paul and everybody at Crooked Eye for their support of the podcast here on the Pantheon Network, live from the Dark Doc Media Studios, wrapping things up. Until the next time we get together and crack the mic at a cold one, I'm Ray Coop. I'm Marcus in the Darkest. And thanks for listening to the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll.